First, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. In the bulletin, on the front page, just below, just below Community Church, is the new Community Church mission statement that the executive committee and, and myself and, and Chris came up with. Community Church exists to bring God glory, to equip servants of Jesus Christ, and to share God's love so that the whole world may know him. And I think it's a really great mission statement, very easy for you to memorize, commit to memory, and uh, begin to apply in how you view life, what you do, um, the decisions you make. Certainly from a church perspective, we're going to be utilizing this mission statement to do that. On the back page, on the very bottom, is the vision statement, which I think is wonderful. It includes... Uh, Jesus' words from John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And to me, that's just a great vision. Everybody in this congregation, and really everybody that we reach out to and touch, having an abundant life. Because that's why Jesus came. Not to just get by, not to struggle through, but to have an abundant, full, complete, spiritual, physical, psychological emotional health. That's what God wants for each one of us. Friday, when I was in the office, I went down to the business office and saw something that I had not seen there before. And being curious, I picked it up. It was a, a, a whole stack of different books. And as I picked them up, what it turned out to be was old community church directories. And the oldest one I found is this one. It's from 19... 88. And, and here's the, the wonderful thing about this, and the wonderful thing about this congregation and this, this fellowship, is while there are certainly some people in here I didn't recognize, there are quite a few of you I do recognize. There's a picture here of Alicia. You can't see it, but it's a, a little bit younger Alicia. And it says that she was the children's choir director at that time. That's pretty neat. There's a picture in here of a much younger Kirk Mueller. Very handsome, though. Still good looking. Linda Reese is in here with a couple of young boys. I'm guessing they've grown up some. Anyway, it's just neat. There's a lot of familiar faces in here. And it just speaks to the, the connections that this church has, the familiarity that you have with one another, the commitment that you have to God, and that you have to one another in this body of believers. A lot of, of us, a lot of you guys, weren't even born in 1988. Um, but this church has been in existence now for, what, 96 years? We're coming up on our centennial in uh, 2018. So it's a, an amazing testimony to the power of God and his work in the lives of people that he has kept so many of us together. I saw one, Mindy, for, for you and Paul in 2001, I think it was. Maddie, you were just out of the womb, I think. Okay, enough embarrassing people. Romans chapter 2. We've been going through Romans, and, and thank you for bearing with me through this part of the Scripture. It's a tough part of the Scripture to get through. But every part of the Scripture is important. All Scripture, Paul wrote to Timothy, is profitable. 
So stop and think about that statement for a moment. All Scripture is profitable. And then there's a variety of reasons why it's profitable, but all Scripture is profitable. Even the difficult sections we read through, the genealogies in the Old Testament, some of the repetitive aspects of the description of the temple. I don't know about you, but every time I read through Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, I have a struggle. It's describing the temple in the the time of the millennium of, of Christ. And it's just hard to get through sometimes. But it's all profitable, and sometimes we have to dig deep. Other times, like what we're going through right now in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's not that we have to dig so deep, but we have to avoid running away. Because Romans 1, 2, and 3 is all about Paul making the case that we are all sinners. That all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's not easy for us to hear. It's not easy for mankind in our flesh to accept the statement that we do not have good dwelling within us. And we'll get to that this morning. That somewhere in the scheme of humanity, all of us fall into one of these three categories that Paul is talking about in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Romans 1, uh, verse 18 through 32, Paul's talking about depraved humanity. Humanity that has inverted the plan of God to its furthest point, and God has given them over to their sin because they have so engaged their sin and rejected God. No acknowledgement of good or evil, just doing what pleases them. Some of us have fit into that category at some points in our lives. Maybe not today, but at some point. First part of Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about those who are moralists. They understand that there's a moral code. They have a conscience, Paul talks about there at at, uh, the end of the first section, chapter 2. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law have been written in their hearts. Their conscience bears them witness. Sometimes it accuses them, other times it defends them. But the fact is that there is a conscience, a sense of right and wrong that has been ingrained in them. And even though they perhaps don't know the law of Moses, they know what is right or wrong. And James wrote that to him who knows what is right to do, but he doesn't do it. To him it is sin. So when you violate your conscience, even if you're not violating a known statute out of the law of Moses, you're still sinning because you're violating what you know to be right. So the the people in chapter 1 are just no holds barred, no rules, no regulations. And yet God has still given them a testimony. It says that He's revealed His eternal power and divine nature through what has been made. He's given them creation. We look around us and we see creation. We know there must be a creator. We see design in creation. There must be a designer. So even the person who throws rules out the window is confronted with the reality of God. So too the moralist who has a sense of right and wrong and has a conscience that tells them so, they know that that comes from somewhere. And Paul is saying that all of us violate in one of those regards. Now, what we're going to go through today is dealing with, I think, an area that is very close to home. 
In context, it's specifically talking about the Jewish people. Those who had the law of Moses. Those who lived by the commandment. And their righteousness was found within their obedience to the commandment. Paul's going to be addressing them. And he's going to be showing that even the religionist, the person who has the law of God in their possession, is not righteous. Cannot stand before God and say, I have done your will 100% of the time, both in an outward sense, but also in an internal sense, inside of us. Because you remember Jesus said, you have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you have looked upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have already committed adultery. You've heard it said thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you have been angry with your brother, you have already committed murder in your heart. So not only do we have to keep the commandment externally, but we are required to have an internal motivation that pleases God. And so that's what we're getting into. And it's, I say, dangerous for us. It's thin ice for us in the church because so many times people in the church have this experience. You could, if you wanted to, read through this passage of Scripture and instead of saying, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, you could read it and say, now you, if you call yourself a Christian. It becomes a bit more convicting. But I'll give it the Jewish twist. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, that is the law of Moses that was given back in Exodus, boast in God, if you know his will, and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So stop there for a moment. So they felt like they had a privileged position. They had the law of Moses. And... They boasted in God, but it wasn't so much in God that they boasted, but it was in the nature of their relationship with God. See, the Jews believed, and, and, and rightly so to some degree, that they had a privileged position with God. They truly believed that God was a respecter of persons. They believed that God respected the Jews more so than the Gentiles. In fact, in, in, in Jewish writings, you will find that the, the Jews truly believed that the Gentiles were fodder for the fires of hell. The Jews believed that if they were circumcised physically, in fact, this is, this is something that is actually in the writings, if they were physically circumcised, they could not go to hell. So they believed that they had this privileged position and they, they were superior or understood what was superior because they were instructed in the law. And because of all that, Paul is challenging them. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a quote from Isaiah 52.5, and it's very true. If you look at the history of the Jewish people, though they did have the law of Moses, though they did have this special relationship with God that was signified by circumcision, which God had given to Abraham in the book of Genesis, 
even though they did have this, they never, ever kept the law. Very early on in their experience. In fact, as Moses was up on the mount receiving the law from God, what were the Israelites doing? They were partying. They were having a good time. They were fashioning a golden calf. So from the very outset, the Jews did not keep the law. So even though they thought they had the law and that made them superior and in privileged position, the reality is they never kept it. And that's because the law was never intended to be kept to show forth our righteousness. And we'll get to that next week. So the Jews are in this position where they have this uh, law of God that has been given to them. Because of that, they have an understanding of what God's righteous requirements are. And yet, Paul is pointing out here, you haven't kept them. You haven't done what God requires. And because of that, the Gentiles even blaspheme the name of God. The, the prophet Nathan, after David's sin, said to, to, to David, because of this sin, the Gentiles will profane the name of God. And it's true. So circumcision has value if you observe the law. Circumcision, of course, is the removal of the foreskin uh, from, the, from the male uh, reproductive organ. And it has value if you observe the law, Paul says. So circumcision was an outward action that symbolized or was intended to symbolize something that had happened within the heart of the person who was being circumcised. So if you observe the law, if there has been a true change within you, if you have been born again of the Spirit, circumcision has value. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? And the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Now, don't misunderstand this. Paul is not talking about a righteousness through what people do, whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised. He's pointing out that the person who does what he knows is right to do is the person who, who is actually keeping the law. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised. It doesn't matter if you have an external evidence of your uh, membership within this particular group. Paul is saying that true obedience comes from the heart. And so circumcision has value if from your heart you observe the law. But of course, none of us can do that. And so here in, here in the church, it's a very similar type of experience. You ask a person, are you a Christian? And their response might be, well, I was baptized. You ask them, are you a Christian? Well, I was married in the church. Are you a Christian? Well, certainly I am. I live in a Christian nation. 80% of the people in this nation are Christians. See, we have the same problem, folks, that the Jews have. We, we, we take on that name and we believe because we have the moniker or because we've done some ritual or, or that we've attended some uh, service or have a membership in a, a role at some organization that we are a Christian, and that's not true. 
Being a Christian means you have been changed in your heart. Jeremiah wrote that the Jews were to be circumcised in their hearts. So that even in the Old Testament, this issue was coming up. That it was a heart change that had to occur. Not an external action that would put you in a position of righteousness with God. So again, understand contextually, Paul is just making the point. The heathen are lost. The heathen moralists are lost. And so are the people who have the commandments of God. All of us are lost without the gospel. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So again, Paul is getting at the heart of the issue. He is talking about the fact that true conversion is not something that happens externally, but it happens internally. Paul also wrote to the Colossians on this issue in Colossians 2, verse 9 and 11. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Not in the law, not in your moral code, not in the ritual you have completed, not in the church that you attend, but in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So that's the point Paul is making here. That without the gospel of Jesus Christ, without a true conversion, of being born again of the Spirit, you're lost. I don't care how moral you think you are, how righteous your behavior may appear to others. You are lost. I don't care if you've attended this church since 1988. If you haven't been born again of the Spirit, you are lost. But the good news is there's a way to be found. There is a way to be found. We'll get to that. Beginning in verse 1, well, you know, just to, to, to drive that point home, there's a story in the Gospels of a young man who came to Jesus. He's described as a rich young ruler. And he came up to Jesus and he said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus interestingly, recites to him the law, actually the second table of the law, those commandments that involve our relationship with one another. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept all of these. Ever since my youth, I've done exactly what you just said I need to do. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at this young man and he loved him. He had compassion for him. And he says, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have, all your possessions, and give it away to the poor, and then come and follow me. The Bible records that the rich young ruler went away saddened, deeply grieved, because he had much wealth. Again, Jesus was going for his heart, just like Paul is talking about. It's a heart issue. 
I'm, I'm, I'm talking about that because this, this is so profoundly important. It is, it is really critical. There's a place in, in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus is concluding the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about a time at the judgment where there will be many who come to him and say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not perform many miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, I will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Whoa. Stop and think about that for a second, church. Stop and think about standing before your eternal judge and saying, yes, Lord, but I was baptized. Yes, Lord, but I was confirmed. Yes, Lord, but I was married in the church. I was a, an American, and America is a Christian nation. And the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you. Can you imagine what that would be like? This is important stuff. Getting this right, getting it into our hearts is so important because it is so easy for us, church, to follow an external ritual, a religious order, a code of ethics, and say, I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. But on that day, it won't be good enough. Okay. Verse 1, chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? So, okay, we've got the law. We uh, have the commandments. God has us in this privileged position. But you're saying that we're all lost, Paul. So what's the advantage of being a Jew? Or what advantage is there in circumcision? Paul answers, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. That is, the Old Testament, from Genesis through Malachi. The Jews have been given the very words of God. And that is a great blessing because it reveals God, not just through nature, but through his specific revelatory pronouncements. So the Jews possess that. So then the question is risen or is raised, what then if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Okay, so the Jewish nation fell into idolatry, was sent into captivity in Babylon. Uh, they, they, they did not keep the law of God. So they were unfaithful. Does that mean God is unfaithful because they were his chosen people? They were the ones he called out? Paul says, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. That's a quote from Psalm 51 after David had fallen into sin with Bathsheba. David's response in repentance was, I was wrong, God. You were right. Now, David was in a position where he could have absolutely said, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want to. But fortunately for him, he did not take that posture. He said, you are right when you speak and you prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say then? Is God unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? I'm using a human argument. Paul's saying, this is not something I would even bring on the table, but some people say this, that God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us because we are unrighteous, and God knows that. 
Paul says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? God will judge in righteousness. See, God is God. And his standards don't have to measure up to ours because he is the one that has no beginning and has no end. He is our creator. He fashioned us. And so whatever he does is righteous. His judgment will be true. It will be accurate. It will be just, just as we talked about last week. So Paul says, the fact that some were unrighteous does not take away God's righteousness. Some were unfaithful does not remove God's faithfulness from the equation. Some might argue, Paul says, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Paul says, I'm not even going to respond to that argument. It is so stupid. And actually, he does actually respond to it. He just doesn't respond to it here. In Romans chapter 6, he'll give a little bit of a response to it. But it is a stupid argument. God is good, just like the song we sang this morning. God is righteous. He is just. He is not made more righteous, more just, by our unrighteousness, our unjustness. So, what should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage as a Jew? No, none at all, Paul says. For we have already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And that phrase there in the Greek means under absolute authority. So every one of us, Jew, Gentile, we are all under the absolute authority of sin until we come to Christ. Now Paul, in the next uh, several verses, does what is uh, in the, the Hebrew rabbinical tradition called a karaz or a stringing together of verses, or stringing together of pearls, literally, where he uses several different quotations from Old Testament scriptures to make a point. He says, There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become altogether un... Excuse me. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not even one. So Paul is trying to drive home the point. Whether you're a heathen without rules, whether you're a moralist who has a conscience, whether you're a Jew who has the commandment, there is not one who has done good in God's sight. None of us measure up with regards to God. Now, compared to one another, we might look okay. But when we compare ourselves to God, it's sort of like this. I can't remember when it was, but there was, I think it was back in the late 60s, the long jump uh, record was set in the 68 Olympics. Bob Beeman, I think, was the guy who did it. 29 feet, 2 inches. I don't know why I remember that. It just popped in my head. I wasn't even planning on saying this. It just popped into my head. And for, for decades, that was never broken. That, that record. People thought it might not ever be broken because when he set the record, it was like two feet beyond the existing record at the time. People thought, no one can go farther than 29 feet, two inches. Well, then along comes a guy in the 90s who, who beats that record. So he's the best that has ever been as far as the long jump. 29 feet, 11 inches or whatever it is. But if he was required to run off the Santa Monica Pier and jump to Catalina Island, 
Do you think he'd make it? I don't think so. That's what our own righteousness is like, folks. We may be very good compared to one another, but none of us are ever going to be able to jump from the Santa Monica Pier to Catalina Island. And that, the gulf between us and God is even greater. That's what Paul's pointing out here. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So it's speaking evil. And it is so true. The tongue is a fire. It's a deadly fire. A little spark from it sets a whole forest aflame. And their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Will Durant, who is a historian, he wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, also wrote a book called Lessons from History. And he did a calculation going back the last 3,500 years of human history. And out of 3,500 years of human history, according to Durant's calculation, there were less than 200 of those years where there was not full-on war going on somewhere in the world. Mankind loves war. We love. It says their feet are swift to shed blood. We're out there ready to, to go to battle quickly. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. And that's an important verse right there. There's no fear of God before their eyes because the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom comes with the fear of the Lord. A recognition that there is a God who sits on a throne who is prepared to judge sin and a world that has fallen into sin and is under its absolute authority. And that is the point Paul has been making and that we have been studying these past few weeks. We are all sinners. We're all in need of a Savior. And that's what we're going to be getting into. Romans is a book of good news. But good news is always something that is contrasted with bad news. I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? Heavenly Father, I pray that each one of us would take this message to heart. So many blessings you have poured out upon this world and upon each of us individually. It's a great privilege to come into this building to sit next to believers of like precious faith. But Lord, I would be irresponsible as a minister of the gospel if I did not preach the truth that we are lost without you. That every sin that we've ever committed, every sin that we ever will commit will be judged. We can have cast those sins upon Jesus at the cross in faith, or we will have to answer for them at the great white throne. Lord, my prayer here this morning is that your Holy Spirit would convict each one of us, Christian or not, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, but especially for the person who is here this morning or is hearing my voice, who has not come into a relationship of faith with you, where they are trusting you. Perhaps they are religious, perhaps they are moral, but they have not committed their life to you. 
their hearts have not been circumcised. I pray for that person that your Holy Spirit would convict them, that they would come to the realization of their need for a faith-based walk with you. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we just be convinced of the need that we have to continue to grow in faith in our relationship with you and to understand that you have a good plan for us and that whatever we're going through, whatever difficulties we face, whatever challenges confront us, that you are there to heal. You are there to take our hand. We can cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Lord, do your work as sovereign and touch hearts and lives this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand now and conclude with blessed assurance. Let's join together in a circle.
Amen. So one quick announcement. Uh, the Sunday evening prayer meeting is changing times. We are now going to be meeting on Sunday mornings here in the sanctuary after service, beginning around 11 o'clock. Uh, we're doing it today, obviously, because of the Super Bowl, but we're going to continue to do it, um, mostly because hopefully it'll make it a little bit more convenient for some of you who might want to come and participate or who just want to come and be prayed for. Uh, you know, from 11 to 12, that's going to be our hour of prayer. And so uh, that begins this morning. Other announcements, prayer requests, praise reports, something that's happening in your life that you just feel you want to share and give testimony to God's goodness about? Kelly. Hallelujah. He broke his arm. He messed up his knee, but he requires no surgery. And I'll tell you what, that's pretty miraculous. So uh, God has really spoken into our lives this last week of, of the gift that he gives us every day, every one of us. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? Yes, please. I know there are several people who uh, are just suffering from colds and different kinds of things. We want to continue to lift them up in prayer. Uh, anybody else experiencing a sickness or someone who's going through uh, something physical that we can pray for? George Stoll? Oh, okay. George Stoll's having surgery on his back. Thank you. Yes, Val. So Amelia is the little girl's name? Okay. We'll be praying for Amelia. Yes? I would like to pray for our neighbor's mom and a couple who have been doing nursing um, as they uh, go through the injured case. And I just want to constantly hope that God is with them. Thank you, Amy. And who did you, what was the name? I didn't catch the name. Doug and... Others? Welcome back, Spencer and Annette. Thank you. You look a little more tan. <laughs> it's good to be back. Yes, it's good to be back. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this congregation to you, and specifically we give you thanks and praise for Zach, Kelly, and Chris's son for preserving him and giving him a meaning in this accident. 
and a, a boldness now that goes with that. We pray for Joel, George Stoll, who's going to be having surgery, and Doug Nelson as he enters into the last stages of his life, Lord, that you would just be comforting them, healing George. We thank you for the people who are here with us today, all those who are not able to be with us today because of illness or some other reason, Lord, we lift up to you and give you thanks for them. In Jesus' name. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia. Sing alleluia. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Go forth and be blessed. Thank you.